thank you, and good morning. Um, I'd like to welcome all of you, Your Royal Highness, ambassadors, excellencies, and every member of the excellent audience that is here this morning to join us on this panel on U.S.-Arab energy cooperation, one that is, I'm sure, bound to be lively due to the wonderful panelists that we have joining us here this morning. As many of you know, we are honored and pleased to be celebrating our 30th anniversary here at the National Council on U.S.-Arab relations. And for those of you who are dog owners, that would be 210 years. But since this is Washington, I think I'm going to times that by about 10 years. So we're probably celebrating our tricentennial this morning. There's another kind of interesting anniversary that we recently marked this past week, and that was the 40th anniversary, of course, of the Arab oil embargo of 1973. What impact did this have over the past 40 years? And what has actually happened in the space of energy policy with respect to the United States vis-a-vis -vis the Arab world? I would say to you, not much has happened over the last 40 years, except for the past what I would tell you is I think we are witnessing the most profound changes in energy production and relationships, not only in the U.S.-Arab relationships, but certainly across the world. And we're happy to have our panelists here today who are going to talk about some of these issues that impact the U.S.-Arab relationship and the changing landscape and nature of that relationship. First, to speak about the changing landscape across North America is someone who we are so pleased to welcome every year to our annual conference, and that's Dr. Herman Franson. I refer all of you to the extended bios of our panelists, but I'll be saying a little bit about each of them prior to their speaking. Dr. Franson is presently the Senior Director of the Energy Intelligence Group and President of the International Energy Associates. He has extraordinary, extraordinary experience in the country of Oman with OPEC, the International Energy Agency, the Department of Energy, and the Congressional Research Service. To talk about the rise of unconventional energy resources here in the United States, which has had a huge impact on our energy policy is Sarah Ladislaw. Sarah is currently the co-director and senior fellow at CSIS, Energy and National Security Program, one of the premier, if not the premier energy policy program here in the United States. Sarah also has excellent uh, uh, experience at the U.S. Department of Energy and in the private sector with Statoil. As we talk about one of my favorite topics, the rise of alternative and renewable energies in the Middle East, we are honored to have Ambassador Thomas Graham with us this morning. Ambassador Graham is the executive chair and board of directors of Lightbridge Corporation, which provides new nuclear power fuel. It is a NASDAQ-listed company. Ambassador Graham has many accomplishments, but one of them I know he's going to talk about today is his role in the United Arab Emirates International Advisory Board, which basically guided the policies towards nuclear energy in the UAE. Also to talk about renewable energy this morning, particularly in the Arab world, and I'm very pleased to welcome him, is Shahab Karan of Sun Edison. 
Shihab is presently the president of Sun Edison Advanced Solutions, which heads the solar energy business unit. He's previously the founder and president of Petra Solar, which uh, basically combines solar energy generation and smart grid technology for electricity supply. And last but not least is my good friend Kevin Book, who will talk about an interesting topic this morning, that of Iraq and Iran, in his address on Pivot to Persia. Kevin is presently the head of research for Clearview Energy Partners and a senior associate at CSIS. But even more importantly, Kevin regularly takes a beating from the United States Congress as he testifies up there on a regular basis and is oftentimes my partner on media appearances across the United States. So I welcome the panel this morning and welcome everyone's comments on this wonderful panel. Dr. Franson. Thank you very much, uh, Rhonda, for your kind introduction. Uh, it's a pleasure to uh, be here again at this conference. And thank you, John uh, Dugantini, for uh, inviting me again to this conference, which is one of the finest on Middle East, I think, uh, in uh, the Washington area. Uh, you already mentioned, Rhonda, the uh, event 40 years ago of the oil embargo. And that was a major transformational event because prior to 1973, the global reserves, two-thirds of global reserves and production of oil was in the hands of seven companies, the so-called Seven Sisters. The events that took place in 73-74 led to a, a, a complete revolution of that situation. The uh, producers in the Middle East and other OPEC nationalized their resources and instead of two-thirds now owned by, uh, in the past, owned by the Seven Sisters, now two-thirds of the resources and production is controlled by national oil companies. And that's a big change. It also led, of course, to the emergence of OPEC as a real power. Uh, in, the, the, in those days still of the 70s, we had the Carter Doctrine. We had the period in, in, in which Henry Kissinger and later uh, <coughs> Skokoft and uh, before that um, Brzezinski created a situation where there was a strong relationship between the Gulf countries and the United States of energy in exchange for security. Now, the energy part is changing, and we already heard from Charles Freeman the security part is changing as well. Uh, but the very fact that 50% of the world's oil is in the Middle East, and that it is the only region in the world that has the ability to export most of what it produces, has made the Middle East the region that is the most important for us in the oil industry. It is not going to be replaced. It will not be replaced in that role, whatever we do in the United States and North America. The Saudi and other GCC countries remain the key element in the world of oil that can determine what happens to prices. Because what we are achieving now, and we'll go to get into that in the United States, depends on a number of things. 
One is that the technology that we're using now will continue to be stable and, con and continue to uh, give us very large growth in production for more than a decade to come. The other one is price. It's very price sensitive. In the Middle East, they can produce oil for a relatively low cost, even the more expensive oil in the Middle East. We need at least $80 a barrel to have this story that this has unfolded in the United States continue. Uh, it's very interesting that some of the analysts who are uh, saying that U.S. is going to be totally energy independent uh, and is going to be at the detriment of OPEC and the producing countries in the Middle East, they don't say in the same breath that yes, but it depends on the price. If the price goes down 20% or more, we will see a very significant reduction in activity in the uh, United States and other parts of North America. The world has also changed since then that at a time when the um, oil embargo took place in 1973, two-thirds of the oil from the Middle East was destined for Europe and for America and for Japan. Today, more than two-thirds is going to Asia, and it has been projected by both the Department of Energy and by the IEA that in another decade, more than 90% will go to Asia. So already, I think this has enormous implications for trade. The trade relationship between Asia and the Middle East are being enhanced increasingly. We see also that national oil companies make arrangements with consumer countries like China building refineries in those countries. So these energy relationships are increasing steadily. And I think eventually, I think as Charles Freeman was already referring to, you will beginning to see some uh, sales of uh, weapons that are a very significant component of our sales to the region being challenged by both Russia and by China. So the, the question, of course, is, is one trade between Asia and the Middle East grows to 90% uh, of their oil, uh, then will at some point indeed the flag follow the trade, as has been happening in past centuries with the Europeans and the Americans. Uh, as Charles Freeman indicated, the Chinese are not currently yet prepared for that role militarily, nor do they appear to have an interest. As one Chinese friend of me told me just last week at the conference, he said, we Chinese, we don't take sides. We are in a country, we deal with the government in place. If that government in place no longer enters another government, we deal with them. In other words, there are not the emotional attachments that we tend to have uh, in the West related to human rights and other issues. So in the United States, we have indeed made enormous progress that I deemed impossible uh, 10 years ago. And I think all of us were, thought this was impossible 10 years ago. That technology that already existed was perfected and at a price of close to $100 a barrel made possible to develop something that we thought was not possible to develop, the so-called shale gas and later tide oil. It has taken on enormous proportions. So now more than a fourth of our production of, of gas is shale gas. And a growing proportion of our oil is called tide oil, and it was oil that is produced from tide formations, not conventional oil. We are now in a situation that the United States, instead of what we thought uh, late as 2007, 
was going to be a massive importer of liquid natural gas in the future, we are now most likely going to be an exporter of liquid natural gas, and perhaps even a very large one. Perhaps, in some of the optimistic uh, examples for some analysts, we could even rival Qatar as an equally important seller of LNG. Well, to me, that's a little bit far-fetched, but it, 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 it is going to be quite significant. The U.S. situation in gas is such that for a very, very long time to come, you're going to see U.S. being self-sufficient in gas, being an exporter of gas, and have relatively low price prices of natural gas compared to any of our industrial competitors, which is a great advantage that the U.S. has over its uh, allies and competitors. But on the oil side, too, we have added in recent years about as much in the last couple of years as the state of Kuwait or the United Emirates produce. If you add what we call natural gas liquids, we produce more than Iran produces today. In fact, we'll produce about as much more additional oil and liquids um, than Iran was producing prior to the sanctions. We are now the number one incremental producer in non-OPEC. Uh, it, it is an unbelievable story. I had, as I said, I had not believed it possible even uh, five years ago. And if the price, the current price, remains in place, about $100 a barrel, we could see a very significant further growth for the remainder of this decade. We could add, between crude oil and natural gas liquids, another 3 to 4 million barrels a day, reducing total imports significantly by the end of the decade or in the early part of the next decade. Now, so far, what is interesting, the cuts in imports have not been at the expense of the Persian Gulf or the Arab Sorry, <laughs> it's the, of the Arab countries, uh, of the Arab Gulf, um, and since um, this uh, enormous growth in um, production has taken place. Uh, if you look at what they were exporting to us 10 years ago, and now it's almost unchanged. The big cuts have been in North Africa, West Africa, because they produce a similar crude as the incremental crude, the light crude that we are producing. And Venezuela, because Chavez by design decided that he would export more of his crude uh, to countries like China and, uh, and India. And of course, Canada filled that gap very quickly. But the Gulf countries are exporting just as much oil now as they were 10 years ago. Uh, if and when we are going to have further significant reduction in, uh, in imports in the years to come, then it will begin to have an impact on the Gulf. But is this a, is this a major threat, this revolution in the United States uh, to the Gulf in the sense, will it, will it spread to other countries? Well, no doubt there are shale gas resources and tight oil resources elsewhere in the world. But again, is the learned opinion of almost everybody in, in the field that it's going to be very slow, it's going to be much more costly in other countries, but it's, it's going to be significant. But whatever scenario you take, it's not as bad as what happened to OPEC in 1985 when 50% of its capacity was shut in. What we're seeing in the United States today, the incremental growth in production, is more what happened in the, in the late 1990s and in the 2000s with the incremental Russian production. It's the same kind of magnitude, and OPEC survived the enormous increase in Russian production at that time. So I think OPEC probably has more internal problems related to the kind of issues that Charles Freeman was talking about earlier on than purely technical issues. So finally, I think that the, what, uh, the, it will impact, obviously, somewhat on the relationship with the region. 
but I think, as, as um, Tom Danelon already said on a number of occasions, there is some rebalancing between the forces that the U.S. had in the, in the region and in uh, Asia was bound to, to uh, happen because uh, the, uh, the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war uh, demanded such commitment of resources that this could not be sustained. But for the, for the very reason that during the 1970s, Europe and Japan were far more dependent on Middle East oil than the U.S. was, but the U.S maintain the strategic uh, interest in the region. For the same reason, even if the US moves towards more self-sufficiently, the, the very fact that our allies depend on the region for their oil, also the very fact that the global economy depends very much on the region to preserve reasonable volumes of oil at reasonable prices, uh, is, is by itself already enough for the U.S. to maintain a presence, assuming that the, our allies want us to continue to be there. And, and there are a number of other interests, strategic, economic, uh, that uh, I believe uh, will not stop the U.S. from leaving uh, as long as our allies want us to be there. But yes, on the uh, energy side, we have made enormous strides forward in the United States, unexpected before. Um, uh, it is going to make the U.S. far stronger player in both oil and gas than it, I think, has been for decades uh, in, in, the, in the past. Thank you very much. Thank you. Sarah? Sarah Ladislaw, CSIS. Great. Thank you very much for having me here today. Thanks to Rhonda, the rest of the panel, Pat, and everybody here. It's a great pleasure uh, to be back. I think I was here a couple of years ago um, to speak with this group about uh, sort of the enormous amount of dynamism that's taking place in the energy sector and what that means for sort of U.S. relations and relations between different countries around the world. A lot of what Herman said is sort of what we do uh, and have been spending the last several years researching at the Center for Strategic International Studies. But one of the things I wanted to, to sort of talk a little bit about today and uh, play a bit of the role of the provocateur is um, we've been spending a, a good part of the last year looking at this question of what the unconventional oil and gas revolution in the United States means for the U.S. place in the world, for energy markets, and for matters of national security. And one of the reasons why we took up this question is we were sort of repeatedly hearing this refrain that something fundamental was shifting that the U.S. place in the world vis-a-vis -vis energy was shifting, and therefore our relationships with certain parts of the world, the Middle East in particular, was going to, as, uh, as a result, uh, shift as well. And we thought it was a very interesting question, given that you know, energy markets are particularly dynamic, but a lot of other things in the world are fairly dynamic as well, um, especially on, on sort of the national security side. And so one of the questions I'd like to sort of pose to this group and to the panelists for, for, for dis discussion as we sort of go through the next presentations, which will get more sort of in-depth uh, into different facets of the energy sector uh, uh, in sort of the Arab world, is... Are we talking about, in this period of energy and dynamic trade, looking for leverage or stability? 
And one of the things, uh, uh, one of the reasons why I bring this up is that I think that while you oftentimes see people talking about the unconventionals revolution and what it means for U.S. relationships with different parts of the world, especially in light of the fact that, as Herman said, we've just gone through the anniversary of the Arab oil embargo, a, a, a historical period in time which um, has had huge uh, has had a huge effect in sort of shaping U.S. energy policy, um, how we think about energy and its relationships to foreign policy. What is it that we're striving for going forward, and how do we feel about the way that energy shapes our relationship with uh, with with places uh, in the rest of the world? There's a few sort of key insights that that uh, that we've gained in our work that I sort of want to share with you as sort of as, as working hypothesis to sort of feed into the rest of the discussion. I will sort of give you the the conclusion up front is that. Um, I, I feel like periods of great dynamism are actually great uh, periods for opportunity. And I wonder if in a, in a period of time where we're looking at the changing and shifting dynamics within the global energy sector and within the U.S. role in the world from a national security standpoint as well, and looking at potentially what might go wrong or what the, the heightened tension or conflict might be, the, the actual result may actually be uh, a, a, a a way in which we can find ties that sort of tie us deeper and in new and more meaningful ways. Um, so one of the core questions that we get, no matter where we're going in the world and what we're doing, is what does unconventionals mean for the U.S. place in the world, and what does it mean specifically for our longstanding commitment to security um, of sea lanes of cooperation in places where, you know, lots of uh, oil and gas traverses uh, each and every day. And I think that the traditional response to this question, especially from the U.S. government establishment, has been we very much think that that is a standing commitment and something that we're going to continue to do. I think the subtext of this question is is really that, you know, the world is very perceptive, and they've picked up on the fact that what's happened with unconventionals in the United States is it's expedited the shift east, right? So energy markets have been volatile and dynamic within the last decade or so for a variety of reasons, right? In the early 2000s, 2003, 2004, we had an energy demand shock. This is when the world sort of woke up and realized how fast the developing world was growing and how quickly that was happening. And we had a big concern about whether or not global energy markets were going to be able to adapt to that new and changing dynamic. Shortly after that, we had an energy price run-up that brought out sort of the peak oilists, which, you know, that uh, peak oil theory has sort of uh, adapted over a number of years. But that was a real and and ever-present concern. Were we going to be running out of hydrocarbons, right? That was a revolution of sorts that we were thinking about for a good few years uh, in the mid-2000s. We also thought about climate change and the decarbonization movement. Would the world be expeditiously moving to low-carbon frameworks um, that would that would uh, make a world in w- for, for oil and gas uh, and coal resources increasingly uh, increasingly complicated. Um, that was another sort of revolution that we've we've sort of lived through in near term. And then finally, uh, with the, the fiscal and economic collapse of the late to uh, the late 2000s, a question of whether or not we were going to see uh, uh, how the world was going to sort of rehabilitate itself from that that uh, difficult economic period. And right around the same time, finding this onset of unconventionals. Why am I taking you through a history lesson that that you know quite well? The point being is that we are currently living through the spectrum of this unconventionals revolution, right? And and all of those revolutions that had sort of come before that are cumulative. And so now what we have is a world where we're questioning 
what does this particular revolution mean? And, and we, particularly in the program that I work in, think that we're at fairly early stages of understanding what the true potential is of unconventionals around the world. And yet, people are making sort of strategic decisions today, both on an energy policy side, a foreign policy side, uh, in, in a trade side, about what they want to do in light of what they think the competitive dynamics will be going forward because of that revolution. And I think that what we're going to find is over the next several years, we're going to continually be sort of adapting to what, to those types of decisions that other countries are making. Where are we seeing this play out in particular? Well, one is the theme of competitiveness. Obviously, you're seeing that other countries are looking at the low natural gas prices in the United States and questioning, one, whether or not that's a transferable experience for themselves, for their own sort of economic growth and competitiveness gains, whether or not they should tie with through free trade agreements to the United States, whether it's Europe or the Asia region, to try and tap into some of the economic growth and dynamism that's sort of returned to the United States as a result of, uh, of low gas prices, um, but also being able to be competitive in terms of an investment uh, place for, uh, for dollars on a whole range of energy fronts, most uh, particularly uh, oil and natural gas. The, the, the investment uh, landscape for oil and natural gas around the world was increasingly competitive, and now Unconventionals has sort of reordered the competitive landscape for global energy investments and has companies really sort of looking around the world saying, gee, where should we be investing anew? And so, or, or which projects that we previously thought, which frontier areas, perhaps the Arctic, some uh, very large deep water offshore projects that once upon a time looked like the best kind of investment that a lot of companies were going to be able to get into, no longer as economic. So it sort of shifted the commercial competitive environment on the energy side as well. I think one of the uh, other themes uh, to, to focus on is trade ties. Um, there's been a lot of, uh, of, uh, of talk and, and discussion about what the U.S. no longer being sort of a significant importer of natural gas or, uh, or, or crude oil uh, and, and being a significant exporter of crude-related products, um, what that means for global trade ties. I think that's a really important question, and it's not necessarily one that people have a very good handle on. There's a lot of people who sort of, in the foreign policy world who say because there's energy trade relationships, there's a deep and abiding foreign policy relationship. Um, when those energy trade ties go away, there's a reason to look for other things that shore up those foreign policy, uh, uh, foreign policy ties. I think one of the most interesting questions going forward is going to be, how does a world where products in the crude oil market or in the oil markets are going to be traded much more than crude and product, how do those trade ties link countries together and how do countries view sort of their energy security vis-a-vis -a, -vis a sort of a more globalized trade framework? Or if you actually do see unconventionals both on the oil and natural gas side play out in a lot of different regions around the world, um, how, will, how will the potential regionalization of those markets impact global energy security and oil market stability? Um, I think that I think that 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 uh, presumption that foreign policy ties are going to go the way of energy trade ties is one that's not totally proven, specifically, particularly in this dynamic. One of the things that that we've we've looked a lot at is 
um, how when energy trade ties shift, whether or not there are sort of a balancing effect, right? So, for example, a lot of countries that are looking to to uh, sort of a shifting energy or trade dynamic for themselves uh, look to balance those relationships on other sides uh, with other sort of uh, uh, trade and and, uh, and and sort of foreign policy relationships to make sure that those those relationships are, are still stable. So, I think there's a lot of sort of um, uh, reactivity that goes along with that shifting trade ties. The other piece is, is uh, uh, that, that we do see as one potential concern uh, that Herman sort of alluded to, which is in a world where you have well-supplied oil markets um, and not necessarily uh, uh, a lot of um, rigidity in figuring out how different energy supplies come to the market, there's a lot of question about whether or not you'll see a greater degree of volatility or a potential energy uh, price decline for a while. I think one of the big questions is which countries in the world are, are, are susceptible to, uh, uh, to uh, domestic instability or, or domestic financial difficulty as a result of uh, some of those shifts that many sort of in the global oil market see as a potential possible future and a result of an oil market that's not able to adjust to taking on uh, su such a large amount of supply or, you know, as the case might be, a demand side shock where demand does not come on as strong from some of the developing economies that we're looking forward to. And so I think that one of the core questions there is, um, and core opportunities there, is a lot of countries who are sort of reassessing their own ability to insulate themselves from increasingly dynamic energy markets, especially countries that rely a great deal on, on energy uh, supplies uh, in sales for their own sort of financial uh, stability, looking at those situations and saying, how do we need to become more resilient to a wider array of, of potential uh, energy futures? And finally, you know, I think that one of the core tenets uh, of, of, of U.S. energy policy for a long time has been this idea of scarcity. And instead of, you know, living in a world where we feel like we're the largest supplier that's going to increasingly be looking for, or excuse me, largest consumer increasingly looking for supplies to sort of make ourselves whole and make sure that we can keep the economy going, we're in a different position now. And I think one of the biggest questions for people around the world is what we're going to do uh, in response to, uh, to this new sort of strategic position that we find ourselves in. And one of the core, core interests for me is that I think one of the long-standing tenets of international energy policy from a U.S. and even European perspective was oil market stability. And one of the and, and, and sort of greater efficiency and being able to have sort of stability within the global oil market system, I do think that one of the things that, that the, the the myriad uh, examples of revolutions, energy revolutions that we've been going through over the last decade or so, unconventional certainly not being uh, a small one, uh, is this question of how does one still have oil market stability going forward and are the sort of core tenants um, of the global energy system that we've promoted for the last 30 or 40 years really the ones that we're going to be promoting going forward and do they still hold true in the kind of dynamism that we think we might see uh, with some of the, the trends and shifts on the horizon uh, going forward. So I, I think it's a time of big change. I think that energy markets are always dynamic, um, but they have been particularly so over the last several years. I think when you put it into the broader context of a lot of the other sort of, you know, geopolitical and national security changes out there, energy is certain, certainly uh, a, a, an important trend, but it's not necessarily a defining one. Um, but I do think that, as I think many of the other panelists will talk about, 
um, what we're seeing is in response to this perception of, of increasing dynamic uh, or, or dynamism both on sort of the oil and natural gas side, but also in terms of the investment side for, for things like nuclear and, and uh, renewable energy technologies, that we're going to see a, a, lot more, uh, a lot more change over the next several years in a lot of ways that we didn't think uh, or that we might not be uh, we not, might not be thinking about today. But I think that those changes will actually come with a great deal more opportunity to sort of work together and and uh, and find sort of common ground in that new energy landscape. So just wanted to add those comments. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Sarah. And now we have Ambassador Thomas Graham, who will speak about the UAE nuclear energy program. Ambassador Graham. Well, thank you very much for, I thank the council very much for inviting me to uh, be here and make a presentation. Uh, it's an honor for me, and uh, it's, for, it's my first time uh, doing this uh, at, a, at, a, uh, at such a council conference. My subject is uh, going to be uh, fairly narrow in the sense that I'm just going to talk about one particular type of energy uh, in the Middle East, which is, uh, has thus far been rather limited in, in scope. The Dubai Ports World controversy began in February 2006. At that time, a company based in the United Arab Emirates, DP World, purchased the Peninsula, Peninsula and Oriental Steam Navigation Company, the old P&O, a British firm which held management contracts for six important American ports, as well as 16 others. The transfer of the contracts was approved by the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, known as CFIUS, in the Treasury Department. However, a lobbying campaign against the deal sprang up immediately, and in the midst of this and substantial misinformation, Congress in early March essentially blocked the deal. It was a short-term political firestorm, as all of you remember, as uh, one of Congress's specialties, and, and it... Um, well, it's, it, it left its mark. This, this, this outcome was wrong and unfair and uh, was profoundly embarrassing to the UAE to the point where even though the UAE very much believed that nuclear energy must be in its future, it was reluctant, uh, I mean, not reluctant, but it proceeded very cautiously at the beginning down that road uh, in the wake of the Dubai ports uh, controversy and knowing that eventually uh, uh, their proposal, their program would end up being reviewed by the Congress in the context of a one, two, three agreement for cooperation with the United States. Uh, there has been virtually no use of peaceful nuclear power in the Middle East in the past. This appears to be, well, it definitely is changing. 
in the UAE, obviously, but it appears to be changing other, in other places. In the past, Egypt flirted with the idea. Turkey twice asked for bids to build nuclear power plants, only to have the bidding process fail. Recently, Turkey has finally gone ahead to construct uh, power reactors in its country to be built by Russia and to be paid for by subsequent receipts. In other words, no money up front. Uh, the, the, the Russians are going to operate the reactors for 30 years, and, and during that period, the, uh, the, the receipts from the energy production will gradually pay off the cost of the construction. Uh, to, best, to the best of my knowledge, no one else has a deal like that. And so I don't know if Russia, Russia would be, the, to my mind anyway, the only uh, uh, nuclear power fabricator that would consider offering such a, such a deal, as I, I believe. Um, and uh, Saudi, Saudi Arabia has indicated recently really for several years, that it was considering the possibility of the construction of nuclear power reactors, and the figure 16 has been mentioned uh, a number of times. And of course, there has been the long effort by Iran to complete the construction of a nuclear power plant at Bushir. Uh, that's sort of a special case, as you all know, but um, it was first begun in the, in the 70s, and uh, only recently is, is, recently was two, and only recently has one uh, come online. Uh, in April uh, 2008, the UAE government, uh, just two years after Dubai ports, uh, announced publicly announced its interest in evaluating nuclear energy as an additional source to meet the country's growing energy demands. The UAE at the time, looking about a decade ahead, was contemplating, as, as they saw it, a very large increase in energy demand beginning about 2017. Uh, they had a number of uh, plants were under construction, and there were other uses of, of um, nuclear energy that they wanted to employ, such as uh, desalinization um, uh, to produce more water for the, for the country. Uh, and the, obviously, the UAE did not want to use more oil to, to uh, fuel these reactors. Um, that they sell their oil, as you all know. Um, and they believe that the gas, the, uh, their, their gas production wasn't suitable to um, be, an energy, be a, a, a fuel source for reactors, given its uh, sulfur, high sulfur content. So that left coal and nuclear power. The UAE has no coal and they would have had to import large, very large quantities to, 
um, fuel the reactors they were planning to build. The first decision was to build uh, at least four. Uh, eventually, they may build as many as eight. Um, and they didn't want, to, they would have had to build new ports to take the coal, and also it would have created a lot of pollution. So that really left nuclear power um, in some ways as the only option for, for the UAE. Uh, so the first step was to create a, a white paper, uh, which uh, took, took some time, six, eight months or something, some extensive period of time. And in that white paper, which is essentially a government paper, uh, the, the, the United Arab Emirates uh, announced it's called the, white, uh, the Policy of the United Arab Emirates on Peaceful Nuclear Energy is the title of the white paper. Um, they concluded that nuclear power is a proven, environmentally promising, and commercially competitive energy source. And in the white paper, as well as later in its basic law, which established the conditions to um, uh, build the nuclear power reactors, uh, the, the United Arab Emirates renounced both uranium enrichment, domestic uranium enrichment, as well as plutonium reprocessing. These were, as it proved later, very important steps for the UAE to take and uh, remain controversial steps for other countries. This has become known as the so-called gold standard of how you build new power reactors. And, and there's been a continue, continuing debate uh, here in Washington, in any case, about, about the gold standard. The white paper, in addition, emphasized the importance of the establishment of an independent vigilant and effective regulatory body. Initially, after this announcement and for some time afterwards, there was considerable criticism of the UAE program in the United States. It was publicly asserted by experts, both in statements and articles, that this program was a bad idea, potentially dangerous, an unstable part of the world, and essentially um, was uh, uh, being undertaken to offset the Iranian uh, alleged nuclear weapon program. Now, that is, of course, never what it, uh, what it was, but that's, that's what people wrote about it uh, in, in, the, in the early months and years of the program. And there was considerable skepticism <laughs> expressed in Congress about whether this, whether this is a good idea and whether Congress should not oppose the agreement for cooperation. As probably most of you know, uh, a, an agreement for peaceful cooperation between the United States and another country is done under the Section 123 of the Atomic Energy Act so it's called a one-two-three agreement. And uh, the, the president negotiates it, 
and it must lie before the Congress, then I think a period of 90 legislative days must go by. Uh, and if in that period of 90 legislative days, the Congress does not enact legislation, usually by means of a joint resolution to oppose it, then it becomes, uh, uh, becomes law for the United States. Uh, of course, it, the, the, if, if, if it ever came to that, I suppose the president would, could veto the joint resolution and then it would have to pass by two-thirds. So it is a high bar, but nevertheless it has real political significance. So uh, with, the Dubai, with the Dubai ports controversy in the recent past, there was considerable concern in the UAE about, uh, about the situation in Washington and, and what the Congress might do. Great care was taken with the negotiation of the so-called one through three agreement uh, with the United States, which was important because it was necessary to have this agreement in place so that uh, U.S. companies could, um, could transfer uh, sensitive nuclear uh, uh, material, uh, nuclear-related uh, uh, parts for reactors and, and so forth. And um, early on, the UAE made a decision that, that whereas they might, they might hire uh, a company from another country to build the reactors, much of the uh, support for this program might come from, from the United, United States. In any case, their relationship with the United States was very important and still is. So the eventually, after discussions with the State Department, the uh, renunciation of domestic uh, uranium enrichment and, re and plutonium reprocessing was included in the 1-2-3 agreement. It's never happened before. That's the true gold standard. Um, the agreement was signed with the United States in December 2009. Uh, and so at the end of all of this preparation, careful preparation, was the inclusion of this renunciation of enrichment and reprocessing not only in the UAE basic law, which permitted the construction of the reactors, but in the 123 agreement itself. And this converted the UAE from being a uh, suspect partner to the United States to a hero. The Congress, Congress loves the UAE program now. And in fact, they love it so much they want to impose it at least some elements of the Congress, want to impose it on other countries, uh, whether they like it or not. Uh, how that will play out remains to be seen. But um, in any case, for the UAE, it changed everything. Uh, now, when this program began, it's important to understand that the UAE had very significant ambitions but it, um, it um, had no infrastructure at all. 
Uh, my company was involved uh, in helping the UAE build this program. And when we got there in 2008, there was nothing in terms of nuclear infrastructure except one master's degree graduate from Purdue, 26 years old, in uh, nuclear engineering. Now, for some years, he's been their ambassador to the IAEA. Um, <clears throat> however, moving ahead, um, we're, we, we worked very closely with the UAE. We, we uh, wrote a, a roadmap, a 500-page roadmap of how you get from ground zero to a full-fledged nuclear power program. And it was pretty much followed as the program developed. Uh, in September 2009, the UAE established the Federal Authority for Nuclear Regulation, known as FANR, and staffed it with real experts, local and international. The Emirates Nuclear Energy Program, uh, known as ENEC, uh, was also established. Um, uh, and in December 2009, awarded a, a uh, a um, consortium led by the Korea Electric Power Corporation, KEPCO, a $20 billion bid to build the first four nuclear power plants in the, UAE, in the UAE with a commitment from the Koreans to have the first, first plant operating by the year 2017 which is what the UAE so much wanted. That's when, as I said, when the sharp upswing in energy demand is, uh, is expected. And, and there were a number of other things done. Educational institutions were created to educate Emiratis that planned to, uh, to or at least hoped to have careers in the nuclear industry. And, and, uh, you can get uh, degrees and uh, PhD degrees in, in physics, for example, or you, or you can train your, so you can be trained as a reactor, as a senior reactor operator. So there's a lot there now. Uh, Fanner awarded uh, ENEC a construction license in early 2011 after an exhaustive review. And ground was broken on July 18th 2012 on the first nuclear power plant at the Baraka site, uh, which, was, which is some 150 miles, 150 kilometers west of Abu Dhabi city and adjacent to the Persian Gulf. The Baraka site was chosen after some uh, real site experts uh, looked uh, carefully throughout, throughout the, uh, the Emirates and um, came up with that as the best site. The commencement of construction was in advance of the scheduled date of late 2012. Uh, in May 2013, construction was built on the second plant. And the first plant will be delivering electricity in 2017. The second in 2018. Two more plants will be begun in 2014 and 2015 for completion in 2019 and 2020. 
The UAE is the first newcomer country for nuclear power generation in the world in the past three decades. It has persevered despite the shadow of Dubai Ports world's world, notwithstanding the accident at Fukushima, Japan, and in the face of the worldwide economic recession. It is delivering its power reactors on time and on budget. It is committed to the highest standards of safety, security, nonproliferation, transparency, and sustainability. In this context, the UAE, the UAE has established, uh, uh, they, did it, they established it in late 2009, an international advisory board to kind of prove to the world that this is in fact the case. Uh, chaired by Dr. Hans Blix, uh, we meet in Abu Dhabi uh, twice a year. We're fully briefed on the nuclear program and publish reports on progress and on the continuing commitment of the UAE to these principles of safety, security, nonproliferation, transparency, and sustainability. We have had eight meetings and have published so far six reports. The seventh is about to come out, and I've been tasked with drafting the eighth, so it'll come out at some point, uh, hopefully soon. Uh, there are seven other members, in addition to Dr. Blix and myself, people such as Sir John Rose, uh, former chairman of Rolls-Royce, Dr. Kunmo Chung from Korea, who is twice energy minister, and a number of other uh, distinguished uh, uh, experts. Uh, the various entities are very, very forthcoming in explaining what they're doing uh, so that the the board really does, I believe, really does know what's going on from the most sensitive programs, the most sensitive part of the program to, to more, more public uh, parts. These briefings are very thorough. I've paid two visits to the Baraka site where the reactors are being built. There are 10,000 construction workers there now uh, building two reactors. Uh, soon there'll be 20,000. It's a very, very big operation. And the, the UAE uh, uh, awarded this uh, contract for $20 billion at a it's, a, it's a very low price. The next lowest price was $35 billion. Uh, but uh, even for the UAE, $15 billion is a lot of money. And, and um, uh, the Korean company is very anxious to become a major uh, factor on the world uh, reactor construction scene. So um, the, the, the board in our deliberations and our reports have consistently given the UAE a very, very high marks on this program. It's, it's really a remarkable, remarkable program. It's going to, when it's just these four reactors are finished, it's going to provide a very significant percentage of the uh, energy needs of the UAE. Uh, these are new reactors that are being built. They'll last 100 years. Um, 
And it's, uh, I, personally, I think it's a great way for uh, the UAE to invest some of, some of their money because they know that whatever happens to oil, you know, way down the road, they'll always have energy. And all of us on the board believe that the, the nuclear power program in the United Arab Emirates truly is a model program. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Ambassador Graham. We uh, greatly appreciated that summary, and I do think I agree with you that it really is the model program, um, not only for the Middle East, but around the world. Um, may I take this break just to remind you all, you do have note cards on your table. If you'd like to write any questions for the panelists, we will be having a Q&A session after the panelists finish. And next we have Shehab Karan of Sun Edison. Thank you, Rhonda. So I have a stopwatch with me here to uh, remain on time, uh, and I will. Uh, but maybe I'll, I'll kind of give you 10 seconds of my time if you want to stand up, stretch your legs, get some energy going. I think some people have been traveling from uh, other time zones. Feel free to do so. That's a good idea. <laughs> Thank you. I'm truly uh, privileged to be here. Thank you, Rhonda, uh, John, David, uh, Patrick, uh, to invite us to share uh, some of our thoughts on solar energy in the Arab world and how we uh, can encourage and develop more cooperation. The title of this panel is U.S.-Arab Energy Cooperation, and I believe that's a rich area where uh, so much can be done. There's so much innovation, so much collaboration, uh, that can be had in, in this space. Uh, by way of introduction, uh, Sun Edison is, uh, we have a new name, by the way, it's a few months old. Uh, we've changed our name, but we are, we are a 54-year-old company and started as a company called MEMC, Monsanto Electronic Materials Company. Uh, that's a company that made the first silicon uh, that the Silicon Valley was built on. So we have a deep heritage in technology, and a few years back, uh, just in the last 10 years, uh, with the rise of solar energy, solar energy also is a semiconductor industry, and if you look at those solar panels, they're made out mostly out of silicon wafers, and being a leading company and one of the, old, the oldest in the world in that space, that became a very uh, prosperous and exciting business area for us. So uh, solar energy is one of the fastest growing sectors in the energy sector today, or in the world today. If you look at the new megawatts or gigawatts added, um, and you look at the rate of growth, it is the fastest along, along with wind. And it's really changing how the world looks. Uh, we have interconnected over 700 solar sites. We have over a gigawatt uh, that has been interconnected. We have over a gigawatt that, has, that are under management. Uh, the solar industry will receive over a trillion dollars in the next seven to eight years. Uh, so it is a massive uh, growth area for, uh, for us, for many uh, in, in this space. Um, so that's 
That's about uh, Sun Edison. Uh, maybe one additional item I should share with you is that we happen to be vertically integrated. What does that mean in the solar space? That means we start our manufacturing and technology processes all the way from taking uh, almost semi-pure silicon, and we turn that into what we call polysilicon. We have one of the best technologies in the world that we call uh, FBR. And what that is, it produces silicon at very inexpensive cost with the highest purity, which allows you to have high efficiency modules. We also have a crystallization technology that allows us to take that silicon and make it into crystals. And the crystals, you melt them, you create an ingot, you slice it, and now you have wafers. But those wafers do not convert sunlight into electricity. At that point, you create a solar cell. You basically create a for the techies in the audience, a PN junction, it's a diode, that takes sunlight into electricity. Then you take those cells and you organize them in a panel and you create what's called a solar module. And then you take that module and you put it at a, on a roof, uh, a carport, in the ground, and you connect it to an electrical device called an inverter. And you need to finance this. Uh, so we do a lot of financing. We've raised over $5 billion in capital for financing solar projects. And then we maintain them. And so it's a very long process, but there's so much innovation along the way. And there's a reason that I mention this that I'll share with you in a second. So how about solar in the Arab world? Um, when we look at most of the satellite images by NASA, Typically, it's the Middle East and North Africa. And I had friends at NASA who said, if we wanted to perform an experiment and we want to be guaranteed that when satellite is up there to take an image and we wanted a clear view of land, the Middle East, chances are it's sunny. It's not cloudy. So, if, so you typically see the Middle East, North Africa with sunny solar images. So with solar being so abundant, and that means solar electricity is inexpensive, and it is, in the Middle East, how come the Middle East today is not at the forefront of solar energy in the world? Germany is, Japan, the US, Chile, you know, other places, France, exactly. The answer is actually a bit more complex and is not as straightforward as one might think that it, it is based on simple economics. Well, let's start with the economics. The Arab world in particular, has either mostly oil-producing and gas-producing countries or non-oil and gas-producing countries. So for a country like Jordan that imports about 96% of its energy, it's a straightforward case. You want to be energy independent. You want to have a hedge against oil price or gas price fluctuations. Solar is a great answer. So that's from, a, from an economics perspective. If you think about oil-producing and gas-producing countries, it is not as straightforward. Uh, let's take Saudi, uh, for example. Uh, Saudi Arabia has announced one of the most ambitious solar projects and programs, I should say, in the world about three years ago, but nothing has been done. Why is that? What's happening? And Saudi Arabia is known for mobilizing for large cities and projects. So it's not to, due to the lack of capability of mobilizing such a project. There's actually an internal debate. Um, when you compare solar to the avoided cost of oil, it's a very clear case. You can sell your oil for $80 or 100 
and the equivalent cost of uh, solar generation is sub-25 or so. So you're definitely saving your barrels of oil instead of burning them at $4 to produce electricity. But if you look at the case from a cost perspective, the cost of a barrel of oil in Saudi is less than $4. And there are people who would say, well, uh, I'm not losing money. I'm producing electricity in Saudi at $4 a barrel, but that's above my cost. So I am in the money in that case. So which, which argument you know, goes forward? Um, there is another case that says, well, in Saudi and similar to the UAE or Qatar or other Kuwait, um, if we don't consume and sell our oil today, uh, maybe there will be a time fairly soon that oil is not needed. I mean, we can argue this back and forth. Uh, but we all know that we exited the Stone Age, not because we ran out of stones. We just found better, better alternatives. So when you actually look at the total global generation of what's called liquid fuel electric generation, it's about 375 gigawatts. And it's actually declining. So electricity generation using liquid fuels is declining worldwide for many reasons. The uh, environmental emissions, uh, other reasons, uh, cost, you know, it's expensive to burn oil. Um, so for solar, you have to look at the mega trend in the case for oil. Just like in the US uh, with shale gas and discoveries and technologies for shale gas, the same is happening in the Middle East. At the eastern part of the Mediterranean, there's a very large uh, reserve of uh, gas that's being explored now and developed. Uh, northern part of Saudi Arabia has very large amounts of gas that uh, will be developed. Uh, we know Qatar and the UAE, uh, they have that. So gas happens to be a commodity that's more expensive to liquefy and, and ship. Uh, so what other uses are there for gas that are local? Uh, one happens to be electricity generation. It's much easier to produce electricity and then build a transmission line to take it, say, from northern Saudi into Egypt, into Jordan, into Syria, Turkey, and beyond. So, so these megatrends, and they, these things are actually happening in a span, frankly, of months, where we're, we're seeing long-term views changing in a very short period of time. And that poses a challenge for solar. Why is that? If you look at electricity generation using liquid fuels, the equipment that you have to build up front is fairly inexpensive. The biggest part is the fuel itself over the lifetime, be it 15 or 25 years. For solar, it's a different argument. Fuel, solar, is free. But the bulk of the cost is upfront. It's the upfront capital cost. So you have to ensure that you have a long-term view on your capital investment and you want to calculate and model the megatrends, changes in oil price, gas price, geopolitical stability, other factors that come in that might impact that payback period for solar. But with, with all these arguments for and against solar, uh, solar happens to be one of the uh, biggest, uh, and, uh, biggest job generators and producers on a per megawatt basis. And that takes me to the heart of many of the solar projects that I have personally, or my colleagues, by the way, I have 
four of my colleagues with me here. One flew from Saudi, one from Spain, um, one came from New York, and then Scott came all the way from Washington to be with us here today. So the strongest case has been for solar is really built on, aside from sustainability and, and the economics, it's job creation. Uh, in uh, the case, my, my personal uh, experience uh, with Sun Edison and prior to that building solar projects in Bahrain, in Saudi, in, in Jordan, and other places in the U.S., every and single time we built solar projects, jobs and the job discussion was at the heart of it. So with the Arab Spring, with the large uh, percentage of unemployment in the Arab world, solar offers a rare opportunity where we can be transformational when it comes to our energy sector, but at the same time solve uh, or contribute in a major way to the, to the job market. And a country like Jordan can become energy independent through local uh, technology and product development and talent. It's an argument actually that is uh, a very strong argument. You look at oil production, number of jobs are limited. When you look at, say, nuclear, uh, you can't, say, argue that if I built a nuclear plant, say, in, in Jordan or, or in Qatar or in Egypt, that I would source the technologies internally. Most likely you're going to import that. But for solar, you can actually build the factories within six to nine months, start producing products and technologies locally, and create many jobs. I'll stop here and happy to take some questions. Thank you, Shahab. Um, last, we have Kevin Book from Clearview Energy Partners. I'm going to talk about oil. I don't know if that's going to surprise anyone that I have to say that. As a last speaker, you have some uh, humility, particularly on a panel as distinguished as this one, because so many things have been said. But you also have an advantage, because you can comment on all the things that have been said. Uh, it is worth noting in that context that this is a panel about U.S.-Arab energy cooperation, and not every speaker has been talking about oil. Uh, there are many stories in Arab energy today, and that's interesting. Uh, I think the diversification of supply is an interesting story. The diversification of, of export products has been an interesting story. But I'm going to talk about different interesting stories. Uh, and in, if you want to talk about stories in oil, probably the most interesting one has already been discussed, at least in the, in the sort of short term, which is the one Herman brought up and Sarah referred to, which is the North American unconventional production growth. It's a big deal and it deserves to be the first thing we think about when we talk about oil. There's other stories we could talk about, something we like to refer to in the firm as the Venezuelization of Brazil, uh, some un, uh, unexpectedly poor results at their auction yesterday as a result of strictures on equity ownership in projects, uh, deterring some of the usual players in the subsalt. Well, that's interesting because if you think about how the world might look in five or ten years, that could be a big part of the story for oil. The thing I think probably deserves to be second, though, is what we would refer to as a possible pivot to Persia. In essence, we are looking at a very short-term discussion, one that I think everyone in the room is well aware of. And from a, a, a crude risk perspective, 
This is big, but it is bidirectional. It is a binary outcome, plus or minus one million barrels per day, really within the next year or so. That's a big deal for the market. Now, how do you go to the plus side? Well, sanctions would have to be lifted. We, uh, we model these outcomes, and I'll get into that in a second with all the proper disclaimers and self-deprecatory preludes. Uh, but the, uh, the way it would phase in probably wouldn't happen before nine months, and the net impact of it might come in a couple of chunks, sort of the now oil, which we think of as about 375,000 barrels per day that could happen instantly, and the soon oil, maybe a balance of 625,000 barrels per day within two or three months. And then there's always the question of the later oil. We'll talk about that also in a second. But that's only one side of the story. The minus is also very much being discussed here in Washington right now. H.R. 850 is a bill that had cleared the House with what has become a customary 400-plus votes for an Iran issue, proposes to expand the bottom-up banking sanctions to eliminate 1 million barrels, essentially the balance of Iran's exports from the market, by threatening sanctions against the remaining buyers, the four biggest of which are China, South Korea, Japan, and uh, India. So a very challenging thing to do, and a bill that could potentially fracture the sanctions that stand today. But treating it as, as it's intended, it would remove a million barrels per day, uh, which is a very significant impact when you consider how the world has been looking lately. There is a lot of production going on, but there have been a lot of interruptions going on, too. So about this whole weather forecasting business, the, the weatherman is an affable guy. He, he points to maps. People like him. He smiles. And sometimes they bring an umbrella believing him, and sometimes they bring an um, umbrella anyway. Uh, but if you look at their success, they're usually very good at short-term forecasts. And the longer they go, the less accurate they are. The same could be said about crude oil projections, except that nobody really likes the analysts who have to do this. And most of them will admit, I certainly will do it publicly, some maybe less so, that it's a sucker's game. It's going to be very hard to get right, particularly over a long period of time. Uh, we have an agency here in the United States which does it routinely over and over again and, and gets criticized by my financial industry clients for failure to forecast the oil market. I'd argue there's greater failures one could make in the realm of the unknown. So having said all that, when we look at the way the world looks today, our fourth quarter 2014 projection for Brent is about $105 per barrel. And that's based on our interpretation of past relationships, which may or may not apply to the future. If you get a million barrels per day removed from the market, so the upside risk scenario, that number rises to about 114 million barrels per day, and the model corrects for the price impacts on demand. And if you take away a million barrels per day in the fashion that I described, you're now looking at about $93 per barrel, uh, which is potentially a downside risk that impacts everyone in this room. Uh, so Herman, I think, I, I tend to abbreviate things because... I, I have a short attention span, but the way I would abbreviate the message I think is impossible to miss from Herman and Sarah is that the rocks are very old. Technology and economics are what has changed. We produce conventional oil uh, in very small quantities. We produce unconventional oil in ever-growing quantities here in the U.S. Overseas, though, 
The resource is a conventional resource at a much lower lifting cost. The economics are differentially far better. It seems that we're a long way off from energy independence, a term I despise. I'd argue you'd want to optimize your energy balance. But if anything, you would be talking about liquid self-sufficiency. However sufficient our liquids, we will be buying them on a global market basis. Our price will reflect global supply-demand balances. And so we can benefit as a producer nation here in the U.S. from moments of scarcity, but we stand to suffer far more than we benefit, unlike some of the players elsewhere in the world. And as a result, we are ill-positioned for all this loose talk of energy independence, in my view. And I would commend uh, those who would do it to think about what the world looks like when you yank out 10 million barrels per day of production. It doesn't look like anything I've just described. I think Sarah's point about the small perturbations being surmountable is a very good one. Uh, I think if you want to qualify how things have gone up or down, demand contraction in the OECD is probably one of the most meaningful things to talk about. The new supply plus the demand contraction takes us to a world where we are today. But what about tomorrow? The later oil. Some say it doesn't exist at all. Iran has enough engineers. They know everything they need to know. Their resources tapped out full stop. They're lucky if they can ever get back to four. Others say, look at Iraq. <coughs> Iraq's a special case. Iraq is also an overwhelming success story. The bidding for the investment rounds began in 2009. Oil production in Iraq has increased by nearly 40%. The IEA, who have their own forecasting issues, have projected that it could grow to 6 million barrels per day, up from 2.2 in 2009 by 2020. Even if it only got half, halfway there, 4.8. What a tremendous addition of resource, and at a cost that is lower than the unconventional production cost everywhere in North America. So something to be mindful of. I, I'm not a petroleum geologist, and the NIOC engineers haven't given me updates on the reservoirs over in Iran. So I'm afraid I can't tell you whether or not there's a prospect for later oil. But it is known that European super majors are interested in getting back there. And so when we ask how the world changes because of a potential pivot to Persia, the question our, our clients ask, which is, they're unfriendly people, they manage money, they're impatient, they're in a hurry. Up or down, Kevin, which one is it? And our answer is, wait till November 8th. If negotiators come back from Geneva without the four corners of a deal, or perhaps an agreement in principle, which seems possible, but quite a heavy lift, Congress seems poised to go ahead and pass the next round of sanctions. It's pretty clear they might do it anyway, even before Geneva happens. And this is an issue no one in Congress stands in front of. It would give President Obama a very complicated but powerful negotiating tool to use going into Geneva. But if it doesn't happen before, it's very likely to happen in the, in the event of an inconclusive result thereafter. So the world, if Geneva doesn't work, comes back looking like upside risk. And the world, if Geneva works out even a little bit, starts to look like downside risk. One comment for those who aren't oil analysts. It's kind of crass to talk about the price of energy going up uh, as an upside risk 
and to talk about the price of energy going down as a downside risk, but I'm sure the producers in the room understand. Uh, so I apologize for my terminology. Anyway, that's where we stand. It's a very big binary outcome in the near term. It happens against the backdrop of all the other things we've discussed. OECD demand contraction, uh, the Iraqi success story, tremendous success story, the unconventional uh, growth that might happen somewhere else and what's happening here in North America. But none of the world is going to look like we imagine it without the core producers who are producing the marginal barrels today. Thank you. Thank you, Kevin, and thank you to our panelists. Since we have limited time here before we break and all have to leave this room for lunch setup, I'm going to take this opportunity. There have been an enormous amount of questions about the UAE program. Um, so I'm going to take the opportunity to ask uh, both Shihab and Ambassador Graham about the United Arab Emirates. And the questions seem to be focused um, on the 123 agreement. And if there is any political upheaval, how is that going to affect the agreement? Also, what role will nuclear energy play in Mazdar City? And why is Mazdar investing in solar energy projects around the world when they have the nuclear energy program there? So we'll hear from Shihab and Ambassador Graham on those issues. For the remaining panelists, this is something that uh, certainly keeps coming up continually in the questions from the audience. Is this a zero-sum game between the United States and the Arab world with respect to our energy landscape, or is this a win-win? In other words, Herman and Kevin and Sarah, if you can talk a little bit about some joint ventures that may be going on with respect to shale exploration, for instance, in Saudi Arabia, okay? Or in Oman or Bahrain or in the Gulf countries, Herman, what's going on there with respect to any joint ventures between U.S. technologies in the new discoveries of oil and gas? And the same thing, Kevin, and where have the energy companies been in Iraq? Shihab. <clears throat> Um, I'm sorry. Do you want to go first? Uh, I don't know. I'm go ahead. I just okay. was asking for guidance. Yeah, please. Why don't you go first, Ambassador Graham, and then... Okay, on the first, on the first question of um, political upheaval in the UAE, of course, you can't rule that out in any country. I must say, having been there about 20 times, uh, I, I think it's highly unlikely, but it, I mean, as I said, you can't rule anything out. Uh, and if there were political upheaval, I suppose it would depend on what it was and, and, and how it affected things. The, the Baraka site is far removed from, from um, uh, the, uh, the cities of the, of the, of the UAE. Um, I, I guess I would say that uh, it, 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 it could have a negative effect, uh, depending on what it was, uh, how it would affect the one two, three agreement uh, with, the, with the United States. Uh, it would be the same there. Uh, the United States would react uh, according to how it perceived the, the upheaval 
uh, what effect it would have, how long it would last, how significant it would be. But having said all that, I think it's very unlikely. I certainly don't see any signs of, of that sort of thing. The UAE is doing very, very well. Uh, and the other uh, question, Mazdar, why isn't nuclear energy uh, included in Mazdar, which I believe was the question. <clears throat> As I understand it, Mazdar was a, an experiment by the UAE to see if it would be possible to um, operate a, a city, uh, a, a, a separate city, solely on renewables, solar and wind. Um, it hasn't really worked out, uh, at least not thus far. It's ha had to be supplemented by other uh, energy, but that was the that was the idea. Uh, you wouldn't put nuclear into that because that wasn't what it was about. It was supposed to be a test uh, uh, to see, or maybe test is the wrong word. It was supposed to be an experiment to see whether or not a, a city could be run by uh, solely by renewables. And uh, that's... Uh, I, uh, that's but it's it, uh, it's had some success, but it hasn't been, as I understand it, a hundred percent successful. So uh, I agree. I think Kevin uh, said it's energy independence. It's it's about optimizing the various resources. So when you look at any country, uh, you will not find one resource or one source of energy to be the answer for everything. So you really need a portfolio. And there's a paper out of Princeton on, on this subject for anyone uh, interested in uh, further. Uh, when it comes to Masdar, uh, we've, we've had the privilege of meeting with Sultan, Dr. Sultan, the head of Masdar, um, last month in New York City. And he gave a talk uh, where he emphasized their strategy. So Masdar is doing multiple things. One, uh, Ambassador is correct, is a Masdar city which is an experiment to be zero uh, carbon city in, in the UAE, uh, powered by renewables, and then there's energy efficiency and energy storage. But there's also the Monster Institute, which is uh, a very strong academic uh, center, research and development center associated with MIT and other academic institutions that grants masters and PhD programs for the job creation story we talked about earlier. And then Mazdar also is a financial investor. So Mazdar does invest uh, in renewable energy projects around the world. And there are various technologies, wind, solar, different types of solar, that Mazdar invests in for financial returns, but also to gain the experience from building, operating, and developing uh, such projects. Thank you. Herman? And in the short in the short run, what is happening on the uh, U.S. shale gas and tide oil side is win-win-lose. U.S. wins because it's a high price, so there is a more more efficiency, and they win because they can produce the additional shale gas and and, uh, and tide oil. The consumer wins because uh, at, if if the United States had not produced this incremental oil, Adam Zeminski of the EIA would argue perhaps oil prices would run at $120 per barrel. So one could then argue that OPEC is perhaps on the losing side. 
Uh, in the longer term, it's perhaps win-win because it takes the pressure away of places like the Kingdom, which do, does not want to expand beyond a certain limit, and that pressure is taken away from it. Also, it may keep oil prices in a certain range that could keep oil longer into the in energy loop than it otherwise would have been. On the technology, the, it, it's nothing secret. The Schlumbergers and the Halliburtons are perfecting the technology. They're working in places like Oman to develop high-cost tight gas, and they will do the same in other countries in the Gulf. Sarah and Kevin. I think just two quick points um, that I'd make on, on sort of the win-win proposition, because I do think it is a win-win proposition, is, is two things. One, we, we didn't really talk about the fact that, you know, countries in the Middle East um, have a lot of source rock, too. And so it was actually the Minister of Energy from Saudi Arabia, Ali Naimi, who came to CSIS and said, gee, we're really glad about all your conventionals. We have them, too. And so what what I think is the win-win side of this unconventional story that I think is really, really important to emphasize when you talk about energy dynamics anywhere in the world is um, that it's created a lot of resource optimism, where before there was a sort of a, a predominant feeling of sort of pessimism and scarcity. Right now, I think that there's a lot more people in a lot of different countries, uh, in the Middle East included, looking at all the different ways that hydrocarbons in particular can be developed. But then also, you know, in the face of an ever more abundant hydrocarbon future, looking at some of these other sources of energy and saying, you know, we really have a commitment to the diversity on the sources side as well. Um, and the, uh, the, the second piece is I think that, and Herman sort of alluded to it, I think one of the things we've got to remember in looking at sort of the foreign policy side of it and sort of the global peace and stability side of it is the, the more energy you have at lower cost, this is a different sort of downside, <laughs> upside downside risk than what Kevin was talking about, the more people can, can afford to sort of develop and move into the middle class and, and have higher standards of living. And I think that that's something that governments around the world really share uh, as a goal. And so I think there's a significant amount of win-win uh, of here, uh, even though sort of near-term uh, uh, politics might uh, obfuscate those at, at some points, but I think there's a lot of win-win opportunity. So. Well, that makes it easy to agree with everything they've said, and I do, um, again. So the second uh, point, I think, is, uh, is pretty strong, and the first point Sarah made on the source rock is even stronger. If you have big oil fields, you must have source rock somewhere. It seems to make sense. Um, but what about when you refine that oil? You know, one area for potential future competition is going to be the investment in the downstream, uh, where the chemicals are made, where the gasoline and diesel fuel are made. We have a local advantage here in the U.S., which is hard to replicate. We have high-complexity refineries. We have very cheap natural gas to power those refineries. Uh, it makes us a formidable competitor on the global refined product landscape. The good news is others will be competed out of business before either the U.S. or the Middle East and we will probably be serving them all. So I want to add a, a fourth win, uh, if, I, if I may. <laughs> Terrific. Well, please join me in thanking all the panelists for this excellent discussion this morning. Thank you.